It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. We're recording on Thursday, April 23rd. And I'm excited to have today's conversation about Jewish education, that is Jewish education as an industry, which is being challenged right now, uh, but also Jewish education as a practice that has lived for Jews at home and in their lives independent of our schools. That is now a totally different uh, set of responsibilities today. I'm excited to have this conversation today with two people who I'm very close to. Um, uh, first, Stephanie Ives is the head of school at Beit Rabban Day School, um, a school that is also the that I send my children to, uh, and Stephanie and I are married, so we're recording here from the Ives Kurtzer family office uh, in Riverdale. And uh, our other guest today is Rabbi Ethan Tucker, uh, co-president and Rosh Yeshiva of uh, Hadar Institute. And I'm excited to be with both of you today. Let me just start off with a kind of icebreaker. Ooh. So what's, what's the best thing you've either read, watched, cooked, or eaten since this crisis broke out? Ethan, let me start with you. Yeah, I've definitely been on a little bit of a cooking tear. I uh, rediscovered uh, Claudia Rodin's Book of Jewish Food, and I've been doing lots of cultural appropriative cooking uh, from all kinds of different groups that I am not really from. Uh, so what did we have? We had a really good pomegranate sauce chicken the other night, and then I also made some quinoa eggplant rollatini, uh, which were... Really good and spiced like kebabs, but didn't taste like them. Amazing. Stephanie? This is domestic shaming of people. <laughs> Here we have two men mansplaining cooking at home and domestic shaming the one woman. Everything my husband has cooked every single night has been truly epic. So that's the best I've eaten, I think, in my life. And no offense to my mom. Wow. Yes, truly, I mean that. And the best thing I heard was actually from from a four-year-old in my school one day who got unmuted somehow early on in Zoom, who explained to everybody that we have to be very, very flexible right now because he's never had the coronavirus before in his whole entire life. And I keep referring back to that because it was really like the wisdom um, from children. Yeah, so for me, um, yeah, I also, Ethan, I've been doing a lot of cooking. Um, It's been a normalizing habit and uh, kind of a helpful routine. And actually the best thing that's happened for those of us who live in Riverdale, I know you benefited from this too, is Moss Cafe, Mm -hmm. our kosher local organic um, uh, coffee shop has been curating uh, boxes, farm boxes to support their uh, local farms. So we pick that up now about once a week and it's uh, it is, it is revelatory. And and the single best thing in that box yesterday, I don't know if you experienced this as well was the green garlic. <laughs> You're like, is that a leak? No, it's not a leak. That is something else entirely. And it was we had a transformative cauliflower experience. Anyway, um, so thanks again to both of you for making some time today. 
both, all of us around this table uh, are unusual as American Jews in the sense that we are both uh, leaders in, in the field of Jewish education, but also we are consumers uh, of the Jewish day school industry. Uh, and that's unusual. It is a huge business, a multi-million dollar industry that is teetering in all sorts of ways uh, because nobody uh, anticipated that like the whole idea of Jewish day school is in some ways outsourcing the Jewish education to professionals uh, and sending your children to an incubated intensive Jewish educational experience outside the home and hoping that they come back whole. I want us to wrestle today with what it means to both be uh, thinking about this business as, as being part of it and running it and what are the challenges that we're facing, but also uh, the challenges that we have as parents uh, in watching what what was supposed to be a totally different experience for our children uh, and playing it at home. Let me start with you, Stephanie, because you run a school and you had to kind of overnight pivot from what the school saw itself as to, to providing yeah. a totally different set of services. So, so help us like understand from the inside of that, what that experience has been like for parents, for teachers, and also just for the school's own identity. Absolutely. So first, we are a progressive school, meaning that we uh, really subscribe to progressive educational models. And that um, that's also uh, influenced by our Jewish values. Progressive education, we're also very low tech intentionally, basically throughout school. Progressive education, um, the way that we do it is very relational. Kids learn through conversations starting from age three. And one of the things that's a hallmark of Beit Rabban and other progressive schools in general is kids' ability to develop critical thinking through conversation, to talk to each other. They have remarkable partnership skills, chavruta skills. And so it's very, it's very, very much based as an in-person model, right? So that was number one challenge. You know, as I was thinking this, I had like four days to think about this, um, during which time I kept saying, we're not closing school this year, but in case we need to. And then by day four, it was obvious that we were closing school the next day, right? So in my four days of thinking about this, I felt like there's no way we can transform our product into um, an online platform. Like none of it coheres. And I finally just came back to, well, our product is a strategy. I need to look at what are our goals and then ask ourselves, how do we design a new strategy to achieve our goals? And so we came back to our fundamentals. And for us, our fundamentals are active learning, like hands-on active learning, kids having ownership, empowered Judaism, which is a fluency, a joy and personal meaning, boundless exploration. You learn from everywhere, place-based education, which by the way, is very helpful when you're not in your regular space. And our last thing is caring community. Um, so we've just designed around that and said, okay, the tools that we usually use for this are no longer tools. Let's think of the other tools. I anticipated that it was going to be impossible to bring my teachers along. They're very, very, very used to flexibility. We are an iterative place. We change all the time. So I have a lot less difficulty introducing new concepts or new methodologies than I think a lot of other schools do. But we don't use technology, like almost at all. And some of my teachers 
really don't even in their personal lives. I think the reason that we were able to to overnight move to uh, an online platform that's been highly successful, which is Zoom, and then we keep adding more. Like we we weren't on Google Docs. Now everyone's on Google Docs. We didn't have Google Sites for Classroom. Now everyone has that. We're adding more and more educational platforms. I think the reason is because it's a basic educational belief that we have, which is when it's hands-on and when it's in context and when there's real purpose, the learning happens quicker and it sticks. And like, we think about that in the way that we teach our kids. We always want there to be context, whether it's math or Judaic studies, we always want it to be personal meeting and we always want to have immediate application. Here we had that. So there was no choice but doing it and also very mission driven. So everybody is so, so on the same page of the needs of the children that we just knew we had to. So, okay. So I want to come back. You you put out a bunch of, um, a bunch of goals there and a bunch of descriptors of what you you know, you described it as this is how we educate, but another way to put it is this is what we think are the goals of Jewish education. Yes. And then, and you, and you indicated, okay, here are the things that are quite difficult uh, culturally. I want to come back a little later to the report card question, which yes. is if those are the goals of Jewish education, what are we actually, what's achievable? Yeah. Uh, because I, I don't know, we've talked about this as parents with our kids of like, what's the pass fail right now mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of our children's education, survival, yeah. mental health, et cetera. So I'm not even sure that the benchmark has to be excellence right now when it comes to any of this work, but we can come back to that. Ethan, let me just ask you to kind of come in with your perspective before we get to day school education. You're also running an educational institution. Uh, you're, you're training smicha students. You have a, a yeshiva that is now shut down, but presumably you're trying to provide not just public learning experiences. Hadar is offering many of those online, like many of our own institutions, but also trying to kind of run a, an educational institution that's immersive and intensive for your students. So, what has that? Um, what is what's worked and what has that felt like? Yeah, just two very brief kind of almost intro comments to what I'm thinking about here. You know, the first, which I think is the hardest we're all grappling with, is how long is this going to go on? So the notion of what we do for three months as opposed to what if we have to do this for two years, I feel like looms. And every day I am asking myself that question anew, and I feel like the answers are very different. So I'm sure that'll be threaded through some of what we say here. The other thing which I'm feeling very strongly, it's something I've thought about for years, but this has really brought it to the fore, is the difference, not necessarily, you know, deep tension uh, between the two, but the difference between building Jewish identity and educating for Jewish knowledge. And day schools in particular, but I think every organization is doing some combination of those. Sometimes we're doing far more of one of them than the other without actually acknowledging it. So there are a lot of institutions that I think think of themselves as educational, but actually they are just identity building structures that are using the medium of Jewish text and other things to do that. But they're not really actually about giving people mastery. That's something we've certainly had to confront, right? Which aspects of our programming? Uh, are about giving people a cohort experience, a sense of a network, a sense that these are my people with whom I will build Jewish life. Okay, that might happen over a page of Talmud, but that's not really the take-home, as opposed to what are the components of what we're doing that are actually taking someone from one set of skills, one level of empowerment, to use the language Stephanie introduced here, 
and uh, taking them to another place that can in certain ways actually fundamentally play out for the individual. So it's been weird in that sense, in a sense like, yeah, our physical yeshiva has been shut down, uh, is not sort of present uh, in its operation. But other aspects of the work, so the smicha students who have been learning with us, so actually they were much more slanted even when we were in person to doing a tremendous amount of independent work with text. We've basically continued that without breaking stride. Like I have a shear with them on Friday morning, now on screen the same way that I did. I've got uh, later this morning the sort of virtual Beit Midrash drop-in uh, to help them with that. And the most interesting part, and this I think is the opportunistic piece that all of us are confronting now, what are the things you weren't doing before that you find yourself doing now because the contemporary environment allows it? So I'm now suddenly running a Mishnah club for 45 families on Zoom every afternoon from 4.30 to 5, which... I always thought about and dreamed about me or us doing, and the kids are totally awesome, by the way, and it's amazing, um, but it's not something we were doing because it was so focused on, well, who can we get in the room together? And now we can't get people in the room, but that means we can also reach other rooms. So there's a lot of, lot of cards being shuffled here. Yeah, the short-term, long-term question is a great one. In my own capacity, not just as the host of this podcast, but also running an educational institution, the Hartman Institute in America, uh, have been vacillating back and forth about the question of what's going to change in the field of Jewish education, the kind of education that we do, which tends to be oriented towards adults, mostly in leadership positions. It is more episodic than either of the work that, um, that you do in a school or in yeshiva where you have students there all the time. Uh, we do a lot more kind of dropping in, even though for many of the people for whom we drop in, whether it's once a month or every other week, it's a really important part of their life. And, and we're going back and forth on what's going to change uh, as a result of this. And on one hand, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it became very clear to me that all of this Zoom stuff is going to actually catalyze on the other end of this a recognition of why in-person learning is actually so special. I had one one experience with a group of learners online uh, who I've I've been visiting them twice uh, twice a year as part of a monthly class uh, out in California, and they one person at the end of the class and it was a sad class. Uh, it was the first thing I did on Zoom because uh, I wasn't in the living room with these people where I've learned with them for so long. Uh, one person said, "You know, I thought I was here." all these years, 10 years now, I thought I was here for a cerebral intellectual experience, but I was actually here for community. And this, this wasn't it. So there's going to be some amount of bounce back on the other end. And increasingly, I have felt as I've also sensed, like both of you, that this is a much more prolonged shift uh, than than we thought maybe at the first couple of weeks of let's, let's get through this short term crisis and move back to our regular work, that we are going to have to figure out how to be really, really good at these forms of education, and there may be uh, really interesting upsides that none of us fully anticipated. Uh, we at Hartman started a, a, na a nationwide class for anyone who wants to study our iEngage curriculum. And in the past, had we put that out four or five months ago, I suspect we've gotten 40 or 50 people signing up for a 15-part class where the expectation is right. to come every time. And we got 400, and everybody stayed on. Yeah. I mean, it was unbelievable. So, um, so, and our faculty are just leaning into the practices of what it is to actually do this, you know that it's not as good. 
You know that you like being in the presence of other people. You know that the tactile experience of your Gemara and their Gemara is is real. It's like part of the story. We're going to have to figure out um, how to get better in all of this. Can I speak to actually the intersection of the two points you're making? One, or two points you each of you has made. One about um, the dichotomy of identity versus let's say we call it fluency education and on the other hand or on the other point the importance of the community and also what we're gaining from this so we like ideologically have always at Beit Rabban railed against the false dichotomy in Jewish education between identity education and fluency education, right? And for people who are not sort of in the know about Jewish educational world's internal debates, um, identity education tends to be the sort of like campy experience where you put aside um, some of the like intensive skills that require a lot of time and sometimes kids hate and are boring and stuff like that so that kids love Judaism and really feel connected to it. And skills-based education, which tends to be associated with the more orthodox institutions, is we're going to drill you into all these skills. You'll know how to say every prayer. You might not understand it. You might not care about it. You might hate it, right? But you're going to know everything. So we have always felt like that is a false dichotomy. Those things must come together because actually what we're trying to achieve is to have kids who at the end of the day can make sophisticated Jewish choices and have the passion that to do so for themselves and for their communities at large. And we've been successful at this. So that when you walk into a, a tefillah, a prayer in sixth grade at Beit Rabban, you hear the kids with fluency saying the prayer, and they're actually happy. That's like a very, very unusual thing, a joyful sixth grade prayer, right? And this is something that I'm so proud of. And secretly, I feel also like, oh, we're better than other people of this. And this is a massive challenge. And the, the question of like how long this lasts is making this more and more challenging. We refuse to privilege one over the other. And right now, like we're privileging one over the other. The dichotomy is real. Which we're are actually, you privileging? We're privileging. Um, I, 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 like, I hate saying it. We're privileging, let's call it identity education. But what it actually is for us is joyful communal uh, religious experience. And one way that, yeah, I just, I just want to push because just logically what you're describing basically as identity in this context is basically social, emotional, communal, right. and trying to kind of compensate for the fact that since people can't be in community with other people and can't develop social, emotional skills, you're going to kind of lean on that to make sure that it's not falling behind. But there's an equally logical argument, which would be to say, there's no way we can do social, emotional, and communal right now. Let's move into, let's be the school that everybody hates, but at least everyone's learning Hebrew. I mean, that's kind of where the identity knowledge thing breaks down is, is those who would say you're supposed to hate Hebrew school, but you're supposed to come out learning Hebrew. So why not like the best you could do maybe in this context is basically get people to a place where they're just getting drilled on their skills. So the reason I disagree with that is because this is not like education outside of the context of lived and practiced Judaism, right? We are practicing and living Judaism as a community. And frankly, I believe that what we need to do right now, our lived Judaism right now really needs to be anchored in communal experience with religion and religious practice. So it's not, you know, random things like real religious depth, etc has to be in a communal space and that that has the capacity to really support us from a mental health perspective. 
from a social emotional perspective. So we're, we are erring on that side and we don't have enough hours in a day where a kid can, it's not like all the research shows. We can't keep kids on Zoom that many hours. It's terrible for them. So I can't do both because I literally don't have the time. Yeah, just to, to jump in there, I mean, I think very much speaking here as a, as a parent, I think one of the other things you see in this time is that we can put people on the same screen. We can inf- very effectively build on the prior relationships that I, they had in the classroom. But at a certain point, you start to feel uh, the fraying of holding the individuals together as a group. Because at the end of the day, even in a physical classroom, right, different kids respond differently to the environment. But there is something where the norms and tone and even physical texture of the space is part of holding them together. It's sort of part of the glue. And watching, whether it's watching my own kid or sometimes I confess peeking in from the side to see what the other kids on the screen are looking like, (laughs) you just see people are, are all over the place. And if you've taught in a classroom, you know that's true when you're, you know, in front of them, but, but I see it more now. Um, and that raises, I think, some much deeper questions, which maybe we'll get to, which is when you think about ed- education as an enterprise, uh, which parts of it are meant to be done in a group which parts of it are meant to be done in an older Malamed type system where people are doing you know, one-on-one stuff? How much of our current classroom system is fundamentally like a post-industrial revolution uh, economy of scale strategy for educating people as opposed to a real educational philosophy? And I think this moment is also causing us to ask that. I'm spending a lot of time, we'll maybe get to this, you know, on Shabbat afternoons and other times, learning with my kids now, and I'm feeling uh, what I've always known, but feeling just the dramatic difference between what that interaction looks like, not just because I'm their parent, but because it's one-on-one and tailored uh, than the group environment. So let's stay on that, because you, you alluded to it, you, and you said how much of this is as a hypothetical, but you're making an argument about the post-industrial revolution uh, role of education, the kind of outsourcing of education from the home to the school, in part to enable uh, at least one parent in a home to work. Uh, and all of the questions around what to me feel uh, very palpable anytime I'm around these, uh, around Jewish educational environments are parental insecurities that are solved for by the, by the authenticity provided by a Jewish education. That's a harsh way of saying what you're describing, Ethan, you're in a, in some ways, because you're you and because you're good at this and because you love it and your kids are who they are, the learning at home is something you're competent at doing and confident at doing. And um, it's joyful. And it's joyful. Right, you're uh, not fighting around it. Most but of the time. For, <laughs> for, for, I think for many parents, it's not, it's not just, I don't have the time for that because I have a job. It's also, I feel really insecure about the responsibility that now has fallen on parents to be in charge of their children's education. I'm watching uh, and reading the the homeschooling people are now dunking on everybody else yeah. <laughs> um, and saying like, you know, of course your Zoom school is bad because you're not thinking of it as uh, as you being the primary educator 
and that these are supplements. And on one hand, of course, that's true, but we are not going to unmask move to homeschooling. And homeschooling is oftentimes dripping with privilege because you have to have at least one parent who's not working to be able to do that work. So Plus how- there's downsides educationally. There's upsides and there's downsides. It's a, it's a trade-off. Right. But in some ways, what you alluded to about your own learning with your kids is, a, is a, in the homeschooling orbit because it's what it's saying is you're the primary educator of your children around their Jewishness and anything that the school falls behind on or falls short on is okay because you're there to catch us. How do we deal with the insecurity questions? Can I just point out with response to that? Ethan, what's interesting to me is like in this conversation between the three of us, Yehuda and I are educators too and Yehuda is a scholar, right? We do not have that relationship with our kids around learning Torah that you do. And it wouldn't work in our family dynamic. It has at times in bits and pieces. You know, Yehuda has studied Gemara with the kids. I have constant conversations about other Jewish practices with them. But um, who our children are, our family dynamic, and also our own capacity, frankly, to engage with our children like that at the end of the day is really different. So even with people who are as educated, right? Like if we don't do it or can't do it, right. Right. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, first of all, yeah, no one on anything that's happening in this moment, I think, is in a good position or is it wise to sort of judge how anyone else is handling it. And that's sort of the most important thing. I think the most we can say is what can we learn from different things that we see happening out there and which tools can be helpful to which people? Uh, yeah, mea culpa, I'm definitely a wannabe homeschooler that has never uh, been able to pull it off because of the Industrial Revolution and other things of that sort. But also, yeah, to be honest, I mean, I think I want to do it in theory and in some ways in practice, but if you have ambitions, interests, things you want to do outside of the house that are not compatible with that, um, then there's trade-offs that you just have to decide are you willing to do. Look, I I think there is a mode here, and then there's the question of who does the mode. I think that's the first thing I would say. The parent-child relationship is very complicated. It is, on the one hand, the most fundamental and powerful relationship, the things that you actually deeply and positively connect with with your parents are, are more powerful than any other relationship can really possibly provide when that locks into place. And we all know um, how the things where we don't connect in those ways, whether it's because of our insecurities or our kids' resistance or any number of other things, can be the most toxic Uh, interactions possible and can actually set back a child's enthusiasm for something. So it's it's a high voltage game. That is why at any number of points in time, what we've tried to do here, I'm speaking as parents, is to try to figure out how can we get that dynamic into our kids' lives even if it's not always going to come from us. So, you know, one choice we made had a whole bunch of different factors that were involved, but we chose among various options to send our kids to a slightly less expensive day school and to have some tutoring on the side, which was not from us, but actually from high school kids, college kids, other people, this too dripping with privilege living in Riverdale, where there's people like that who are available. And part of that was a kind of educational decision of, uh, in some ways, wanting someone who wasn't a parent and wasn't an institutional teacher to be there in a one-on-one learning and role modeling relationship. Um, And that was, for us, something that was both doable and very powerful. But I offer it not because, okay, that's the answer, but there are ways, I think, of thinking about how can there be a mode 
of this sort. I mean, I don't know, I'd be interested, Stephanie, whether this has been a part of the discussions at all. I've often thought, uh, in the context of the yeshiva here, like sometimes I've wondered, would it be better instead of having a schedule of classes, if literally the faculty just rotated and learned with every student one-on-one for a certain number of hours a week? Like I've asked the exact same question right now. So what? Okay, so I'm going to admit something. Something very heavy for me right now is I feel like um, I'm leading in a sense that we've created school overnight, a new product. We're holding every family, like we're trying really hard. Teachers are amazing. I'm trying to hold everybody up. What I have not done is say, we need to blow this all out of the water. This is entirely different. What we have is trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. We are fitting that square peg into a round hole with so much success, but why should we do that, right? Like, I feel like this requires a massive design thinking of like, how can we rethink this? And on day one, I actually brought up with the administrator something like, what if instead we just have teachers doing one hour individually with each student? That's untenable. Like, as we're, you know, we needed the structure and the routine from a purpose of mental health, emotional health, and also education, right? But if this lasts longer, I'm scared to say this online because then my teachers are going to panic and so are my administrators, maybe if I work. But <laughs> if we go into September, you know, and next year like this, we need to blow this out of the water. Yeah. We need well, to- uh, there's also... If this goes to September and there's a good indication that it will, certainly with respect to college campuses. Right. Um, uh, there's all sorts of institutional questions around are parents going to pay tuition? Are you know, like who's going to keep enlisting in in these types of things when the you know when the when the dynamics is, uh, are so different? I, it is for very Jewish telling. Schools, by the way. Yeah, it's telling. I had a conversation with a number of my colleagues yesterday where we were also working on some of our most intensive programs, and we were doing a kind of evaluation and planning going forward. And it's interesting to hear both of you talking about this this way because I didn't put it together that my reactions in that conversation then were probably prompted by Corona because it wasn't a coronavirus related conversation, but I was pushing with our team of the ways in which we've been using cohort programs as a proxy for educational objectives, where what the real work is treating each learner in a cohort as on their own educational trajectory. Mm-hmm. And like the cohort is when, when you do cohort based programming, the off ramp is that the cohort becomes the unit of measure in and of itself, like the group of students. But from an educational standpoint, the cohort is a, should be a component of an educational experience for an individual, but an individual has to be educated in all sorts of ways. Now, you can't, it's very hard to build a big, robust institution that is custom designing educational experience for every one of its learners. But there is no question, you know, this as a parent and this as a teacher, that the old, that, that that's what education is fundamentally about, is seeing the full person and providing the complement of content and experience that that person needs to be able to grow. Yeah, too though great. there too, I would jump in and just say, that strikes me and I identify with it as a very American definition of education, which is to say the celebration of the individual and the flourishing of the individual and sort of the growing of their skills. From my brief time in the Israeli educational system, it was very clear that the whole emphasis there was the cohort is the sort of pre army group, pre-society, there's a yeah, sort of... You're talking about two extremes. It's not just American. There is uh, increasingly 
um, a sense not of just like the crunchy progressives who send their school to beat their kids to beat Raban, right? But in education of like, what does it look like to prepare your kids for a 21st century education? The uh, focus on the importance of differentiation, which is like the terminology in education that we use of ensuring that each child is growing the skills they need. And I don't mean differentiating to make sure everyone learns to read, but like differentiating to ensure that you are really facilitating the growth of whatever core talent that kid has. And the other term is whole child education, right? So uh, educating academically, intellectually, emotionally, and Jewish schools have the benefit of also spiritually. Right. It's just very hard to do that at scale. It's hard to do that at scale. I believe in small schools. <laughs> Let me ask um, two kind of lightning roundy questions before we close. The first is, I'd love to get just your reactions, viscerally or interpretively, the, the, to the rabbinic idea of Chayav Adam Lulamed et Beno, for this purpose is also Bito Torah. A uh. person is obligated to teach their children Torah. So again, as we have talked throughout, you know, for whether it's historical reasons, economic reasons, insecurity reasons, for many of us, that uh, that objective is accomplished by sending our children to study Torah from the mouths of other people, knowing that it, from a, a legal standpoint, your obligation is only exonerated when you feel that you've achieved that obligation. It's like when you have your child circumcised by a mohel, they're exhausting your own obligation. And the advantage of a surgical procedure is that you know when you have begun it and you know when it's finished. Um, Whereas opposed to educating your children, you don't really know when you're supposed to be done. So we'll start with you, Ethan. What, how do you understand that obligation and how do you help us map it to this moment? Um, both to put a challenge in front of all parents right now of what it means to be ex- to be exonerating themselves of that obligation and also maybe to help people think about what, what are reasonable objectives for what they can achieve right now. Yeah, without putting it all on parents, because I think one of the challenges for educational leaders at this moment, particularly the longer it goes on, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about this, is what are the tools we have to put in the hands of parents to be able to do this? But assuming that someone's working on that where there's some success... Uh, My lightning responses to it would be, um, number one, whatever you know, you have a responsibility to relentlessly commit yourself to passing that on. That is to say, wherever you are in terms of what your knowledge base and reservoir is, really confronting what I remember confronting when my kid was, you know, eight months uh, and just realizing, oh, my God, the things that are important to me that I want this kid to know, if I don't teach them those things, it is possible that no one else will. And sort of one thing is the existential kind of commitment of recognizing There's things that maybe only you know that only you can pass on and doing that. And that's scaled and different for everyone. And the second thing goes back to what I said earlier, which is, you know, Chayav Adam Lilameded Bino does, I think, get into that relational piece, which is this is not something that's meant to be completely farmed out. And to take an odd parallel, but which I think is sort of pretty deep, another category that is entirely based on the assumption that you are doing it is the category of aninut, when someone loses a relative and then they're exempt from mitzvot until the relative is buried. And that clearly assumes that you are involved in digging the grave, dealing with the body, moving it from place to place. And when that gets farmed out to funeral homes and all kinds of other frameworks, so there is an argument. Some people even advance this halachically. Well, maybe you shouldn't be exempt, right, from the mitzvot because you're not really dealing with that. 
And there is, I think, a sort of intuitive pushback of saying, no, like I'm actually still dealing with putting my parent, my relative to their final rest on some fundamental level. We can't and don't want to let go of that responsibility, even if we, technically we've farmed it out. And the exemption from mitzvot kind of reflects that. That kind of mentality, I think, around education, however people are doing it as parents, um, that, yeah, this is, it's still my responsibility in some fundamental way. That feels important to me. Yeah, my, um, my initial response to what you said, and I'll turn over to you, Stephanie, is uh, I, this is what I did. You were, you were both there, obviously, for our son's bar mitzvah uh, last year when I, I gave a speech. And I, I was really, I felt in many ways paralyzed by this phrase in rabbinic tradition of like, oh, my child is about to become an adult. Did I do what I was supposed to do? And it was scary. And I also felt like that was the right question to be asking in the lead up to my son's bar mitzvah. And that, as you remember, that was my speech. I said, okay, you know what? If I, I'm not sure if I achieved it until now. So I'm going to tell you what I think. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what I think are the most important things about Judaism. And now I've achieved that obligation. Hopefully he was paying attention. I don't think I remember he seems it. seems to have integrated all of it. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I have it saved. Yeah. But I think that there is some, there, there is some merit to an exercise like that of a self-conscious Torah is, is so big and so unwieldy, but Torah is actually supposed to be a kind of verbal noun, um, that which you teach. Um, so to be able to do the exercise of what's really important to me and how do I now make sure that I'm conveying it is, uh, is powerful. Stuff. Okay, so I'm going to say three things, and they're all with the intention of de-stressing any parent who's listening to this. And I'm doing that for myself as well, because um, you know how I checked that box? I went and started running my children's own school to ensure that it was the education I believe that my children and all Jewish children uh, were entitled to, right? Um, but what I want to say is, number one, let's not be revisionists. This might be the mitzvah, but it's not like this has been the practice of Jewish history. It's not like every parent has passed down all of Jewish education to their children. In fact, right now is the greatest time in Jewish history with respect to broad, Jewish, broad and depth of Jewish education. A hundred years ago, I would not have been educated as a girl. And to be honest, my great-grandfather also wouldn't have had the capacity to, let alone the interest in Iraq. Okay, so let's start with that. Um, so we're in a better place, number one. Number two, I want to say when we talk about uh, the obligation to teach Torah to your children, I think that is fundamentally about asking yourself, what are the core things that I want to pass to my children? And then, then here's where number three comes in. Um, there is no end. There is no checkpoint in that. Your child is never no longer your child because they have aged out to an age of maturity, right? So I would say like the way that each parent conveys the core of Judaism to them or the things that have been most core in their life that they want to pass on to their children may be through learning Torah every day with them. It may be through doing mitzvot for practice. And it, can, it, it manifests in a million different ways. We do want to make sure that all of the values that we hold we're conveying in authentic ways to our children. What's authentic to me in conveying it is going to be different than what's authentic to somebody else in conveying it. And just like when we finish reading the Torah, whether it's a one-year or three-year cycle, we start at the beginning. And that is a massive value, right? But it's also 
um, I think something that should give you a sense of calm, like you're never finished with it. That's not a scary thing. That's a wonderful thing. Calm down. It's, you know, you're never going to have to check that box. You're always just going to keep going. Let me ask the last, last question. I'll give, ask you for one sentence answers. Um, give us one best practice, which is to say, and for Ethan, for you, I'd love for you to give us one best practice for learning with your kids. And, um, and Stephanie, maybe one best practice for parents of, of kids in Jewish educational mm-hmm. environments for how to help and support uh, their children right now through that learning. Uh, Ethan, you want to go first? Sure. Definitely do something on a schedule. Depends on the age, when they're littler, doing Parsha at bedtime, literally just reading it, translating it, thinking aloud what it means. It was very powerful in my family. And as the kids got older, finding the text that clicks with them and doing it as a project. I think a really important best practice is to convey that there isn't a stark separation between what's going on in school and what's going on at home. So to bring school into home and home into school, a lot of that has to do, that's a responsibility on the school to create those opportunities. But read about what your kids are learning about and discuss it with them. And it's not your responsibility. I say this on every town hall to parents. You are not homeschooling right now. You are actually trying to work right now while your kids are in your home. So don't try to do more if it's going to create more stress in your families. Instead, try to engage with what they are actually doing in school. Yeah, my, mine would be what we can't provide in terms of experiential education by sending our kids to school right now is the easiest stuff to be able to provide at home and is laden and laced with Jewish content, whether it is how we celebrate holidays. Right. I think many parents experienced Pesach so dramatically differently this year, not just because they couldn't travel to be with family or couldn't host families, because they realized that their home environment was their kids' school. Uh, certainly, we felt that way around Seder's, but I think just throughout the day, throughout the week, um, being able to kind of live Judaism at home uh, is yeah. to, to internalize as a mindset that that's part of it, a Jewish educational practice uh, could be quite powerful. Anyway, thank you for listening to our show this week, and special thanks to our guests, Stephanie Ives and Ethan Tucker. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced and edited this week by David C. Kalman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music courtesy of SoCalled. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. And you can also write to us at identitycrisis.shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Stay safe and healthy. And thanks for listening.